0: Just the other day, I received a Facebook message from Haley, who's one of our labor and delivery nurses, and the question went something like this. Hey, Dr. Choppa, I've been hearing a lot of stuff out there about the injection of oxytocin pitocin into the umbilical vein to try to speed up the third stage of labor. Is this evidence-based? Oh my goodness, that's a great question because it really is amazing how everything old just becomes new because that is something that's been going on for about 40 years and has greatly fallen out of favor and for some reason now is back in print. One of the things that went back in print was a recent Cochrane review back in 2020, and we'll discuss that in just a minute. But here's the question. Does giving Pitocin through the umbilical vein at the third stage of labor, does that actually help? Does that speed the third stage of labor? And more importantly, does that prevent postpartum hemorrhage? Those are the two main outcomes that have been looked at with injection of solutions into the umbilical vein. By the way, it's not just pitocin. It's also been done just with normal saline. And the two main outcomes are reduction of the third stage of labor to prevent retained placenta. And of course, the big issue, which is prevention of postpartum hemorrhage. The data is a little confusing, but we're going to make it very, very clear in this episode. This is the perfect example of how something that's statistically significant may not always be clinically significant. And we're going to state where this practice may, with the keyword may, have some utility. All right, if you're curious, hang out with us because we're going to cover umbilical vein pitocin for the third stage of labor. Here we go. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. According to the Joint Commission, each year about 700 women in the U.S. die from some pregnancy-related complication, and the most frequent cause of severe maternal morbidity and preventable maternal mortality is postpartum hemorrhage. Since 2007, the World Health Organization has supported the active management of the third stage of labor. This has included the use of uterotonics to try to contract the uterus down immediately after delivery of the child to prevent postpartum hemorrhage. Oxytocin is a uterotonic of choice to reduce the incidence of PPH, and its use is universally recommended for all women. Prophylactic oxytocin in the third stage of labor can be given either by dilute IV infusion or direct IM injection. But remember that direct intravenous injection of pitocin should never be done. It should always be diluted because it can trigger severe cardiovascular collapse. That's severe tachycardia and severe hypotension. And in severe cases with a big enough dose can be fatal. Remember that it's not only oxytocin, but uterine massage and cord traction are two other methods that have been endorsed as active management in the third stage of labor by a variety of medical societies. A prolonged third stage of labor has traditionally been defined as one that's 30 minutes or longer. And that's a long time. Remember, most placentas actually separate and deliver within 3 to 5 minutes. A third stage of 30 minutes or longer occurs in 3% of all deliveries. The incidence of postpartum hemorrhage, transfusion, and DNC are actually constant in the third stage up to 30 minutes. But after 30 minutes... Each one of those comorbid conditions actually increase. There's an increased risk of postpartum hemorrhage, transfusion in DNC at 30 minutes and beyond. That's why people have looked at other options to try to decrease the length of the third stage and try to expedite placental delivery to try to decrease the risk of postpartum hemorrhage. And one of the things that's been advocated is the infusion of oxytocin, diluted oxytocin into the umbilical vein, or just injection of saline, large volume saline through the umbilical vein to try to help the placenta separate. It's interesting that when something comes out in print that seems novel or on the fringe, someone's quick to point out, hey, wait a minute, I I did that first. And such is the case with the injection of solutions and medications in the umbilical vein. So our team found a letter to the editor from 1984 in the Gray Journal. Guys, 1984, put that in perspective that's like 40 years ago. My goodness. So when I mentioned in the intro that this has been going on for 40 years, it really has. And actually it goes back even more than that because in this letter to the editor that I'm about to read to you, it actually describes this condition 20 years before that, which means that it was first proposed 60 years ago and we're still not doing it. So (laughs) But I'll tell you why we're not doing it. I'm not, we're not doing it because the data is very very poor and low quality. Except for one basic condition where it may help. Uh, rather not condition, but rather setting, okay? One setting where this may help. But listen to this. I mean, back in 1960s, this was being addressed and it was proposed first as an experimental technique and then it picked up some some steam again in the 1980s and we're still talking about it in 2023. This letter to the editor from the Gray Journal, that's the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, was published on August the 1st, 1984. And there's several important and interesting tidbits here in this letter to the editor. But first, let me set the stage. So these are authors who wrote this letter to the editor are writing in rebuttal to a publication that the Gray Journal did the year before in 1983 with the lead author being Golan, G-O-L-A-N. Golan's article was, quote, A new method for the management of retained placenta, end quote. Remember, that's in the Gray Journal, and that volume was 146, and it was in 1983. I'm going to put that in the reference list on our Facebook page and in our shared document. But that was published, and then these authors come in and say, wait a minute, Golan et al. said this is a new method, but we actually published that a long time ago in 1966. So now let me read you this letter and and we'll go over through several important and interesting tidbits of information that this letter contains. Here's how the letter reads verbatim, quote, the new method of intra-umbilical vein injection of oxytocin, as described in the short communication entitled, A New Method for the Management of Retained Placenta by Golan et al., was previously described by us in 1966 in 240 women in an article entitled, intra Vein Injection of Pitocin, A New Method in the Management of the Third Stage of Labor, that was published by Neri et al., 1966." they go on to state, quote, "As mentioned in our article, 5 units of oxytocin was diluted in 10 mLs of normal saline before injection. In the article of Golan et al., 10 mLs of oxytocin diluted in 20 mLs of normal saline was injected. Can we assume that 50 units of oxytocin was injected in their study since each milliliter of Park Davis and Company's oxytocin ampule contains 5 units of oxytocin?" Let's pause right there for a minute, because there's already two big, interesting little tidbits right there. First, as we mentioned in the intro, nothing under the sun is new. (laughs) So these authors, which is Neri et al., come up and say, Hey, look, this is old stuff. We did this first in 1966, and now here comes this guy 20 years later saying that they came up with it. So that's the first thing. Again, nothing is new. The second thing is they actually have a great point because Golan et al. didn't really give the units given. They just gave the amount of mLs of diluted oxytocin injected. That's the second interesting tidbit. And one of the main issues with this is that there's no standardized protocol of what people are injecting in there. Now, we're going to discuss that later on because here's the big catch. If you're injecting, let's say, 10 or 20 mLs into the umbilical cord... How do you actually prove that that actually went all the way through the cord? It depends how long the cord is. And it's not just kind of hanging out in the umbilical cord itself. And how do you even prove that it gets to the placental the tissue itself at the level of the maternal attachment? So there's a lot of questions here. In other words, just because you inject something at the distal end of the cord, right, where where the cord clamp was, where the umbilical vein is open. If you inject it there, that doesn't necessarily mean it goes all the way down the pipe and ends up where it's supposed to be. So that's one of the big criticisms here. You'd probably need a lot of volume to flush it all the way down to the cord. Also, it depends on how long the cord is. And you have no way of knowing where that actually ends up in the placenta. This is why it's not widespread use beyond the fact of the outcome that we're going to discuss a little bit more as we progress. Now, let me continue to read the letter to the editor, because here in their next paragraph, they're going to introduce a potential mechanism of action, how this works. Didn't you think about that? Well, why would this even work? Well, here's a proposed theory. Now, the first thing is, remember, they're injecting into the umbilical vein, because that's the bigger avenue for injection. You can't really inject into the umbilical arteries because they're too small, and you probably blow them out. Okay? But keep in mind that the umbilical vein is taking blood normally from the placenta into the child right? So now we're working upstream. That's why you'd have to give a big amount of volume under some kind of pressure because the natural tendency is for blood to leak out of the cord. And so that's coming towards you and we're trying to push something upstream up into the umbilical vein. Plus you've got, of course, separation pressures from the placenta, a maternal pulse pressure. So the big nidus of movement, the big force of gradient is coming out, not going in. So that's one of the issues here is how do you even know that you're putting enough pressure to go upstream when things are washing back out? I, guys, I know it sounds a little weird, but this is actually what was proposed. And you ever think about what was actually being thought of in 1966? So when Neary et al., And his group said, hey, why don't we start injecting stuff into the umbilical vein, see what happens? I mean, that's just wild, isn't it? We've talked about that before. Just this brave genius or crazy genius of some of these researchers and physicians. To go, uh, yeah, let's just stick something up into the umbilical vein, and maybe we can make it separate by that. And here's what this next paragraph gets into, is this potential mechanism of action called the hydraulic effect of putting solution into the umbilical vein. The hydraulic effect. So what's a hydraulic? It uses water pressure to move something, like a hydraulic pump, well, that's exactly what's being thought here. Outside of the true pharmacokinetics, in other words, putting pitocin right at the myometrial surface, then potentially there's a hydrostatic method. Let's get into that next. These authors of the letter to the editor continue, quote, The hydraulic method of Magan Gabatsu was very popular in the early 1930s in Europe. According to this method, if placental separation was delayed more than 10 to 15 minutes, 200 to 250 mLs of physiologic solution was injected into the umbilical vein, thus increasing the placental volume and changing the interrelationship between the uterus and the placenta and resulting in placental separation. As they continue, quote, this method was accepted with great enthusiasm in the pre-antibiotic era since it decreased the incidence of infection and postpartum hemorrhage in cases of delayed placental separation, end quote. All right, so let's drop here for this next tidbit in this letter to the editor. Notice what they were saying? Even their study in 1966 wasn't new. Yep. These authors in 1966, Neri et al., stole it from a previous idea in the 1930s by Majan Gabostu. But notice what those authors back in the 1930s came up with. Talking about large volume, 20 to 250 mLs. That's a lot of volume. Uh, that's why we're not going to do that now, all right? So that's why there's all this criticism. Hey, look, in the past, in the 1930s, when there was nothing else, yes, maybe injecting 200 or 250 mLs changes the placental volume so much that as the uterus is contracting, you basically make the placenta larger and, and more... Uh, robust so that it can now detach as the uterus contracts down, you fill in up the placenta, there's this interface mismatch, so it helps it shed. But we're talking about 200 and 250 mLs. You see how that's much different than what was discussed even in the golden paper in 1983, where they injected about 20 mLs. So there's a lot of differences here. And this is why this is so controversial. There's no standardization. And even though some have used plain saline, like these authors in 1930, some have used medication like we're talking about here with oxytocin. So if you haven't kind of gotten the flavor of where we're going, the data just is not good. That's why I said during the intro, it's very poor quality, except maybe in one scenario, one location, which we'll discuss later on. So again, where, where are we at? Does this recap, right? 1983 is this paper by Golan. Authors come in as a letter to the editor going, no, 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 we did it in 1966, but we actually stole it from the 1930s from some authors in Europe. My goodness. And here we are in 2023, still having the same discussion. Gotta love it. Before we take a look at the specific articles and the specific data that has looked at this, I don't want to leave just yet this concept of the amount of volume that would have to be placed through the cord to get all the way through the cord and fill the placenta to make it turbid enough, to make it rigid enough to increase the shearing force at the uroplacental surface. Because this is all estimation, okay? There's no actual data that's actually looked at this. There's no study that's actually pushed fluid into the cord and then tried to make the placenta turbid and rigid enough to cause shearing force. Because every placenta is different. The size is different. The amount of cotyledon is different. The amount of calcification is different. And of course, umbilical cord lengths are different. But there was one publication from February the 18th, 1967 from the British Medical Journal that we can kind of extrapolate a little bit of data from this, okay? Now, the aim of this study from 1967 wasn't to backfill the placenta and then make the placenta rigid it was actually just the opposite it was to drain the placenta to get a better estimation of postpartum hemorrhage okay so that's the first thing is this wasn't to fill the cord fill the placenta and go backfill, it was to see how much it drained out. This study was by Brandt et al., who looked at the capacity of the placenta, in other words, the ability of the placenta to hold volume, and then leak that volume out through the cord. And they found that that amount varied from about 45 to 130 mLs to go through the umbilical cord and actually reach the placenta. So if someone's going to use volume for this, it would have to be at least 50 mLs of fluid and up to about 130 to 150 mLs. Remember that publication that we just talked about? They put in 200 mLs of fluid. So the volume, we have kind of an idea of what's needed. That isn't so much the question as it is, does it even matter? And the answer is likely no, all right? So there's a spoiler. So if somebody ever asked, well, what's the amount of volume that you need to kind of get through the core to fill the placenta, to make it rigid, to increase shearing force? Well, the first answer is we don't really know. But it can be assumed to be anywhere from about 50 to 130, 150 mLs or more. But again, that's just a thing theory. That's a hypothesis because umbilical cord lengths are different, placenta size is different, amount of calcifications are different, amount of cartilagons are different. So that's why there's so many variables in this that it's kind of hard to standardize. Now that we've laid down that foundation, let's actually take a look at the data to see if this works or not. Now, remember, I said that this actually spans 40 years, so we're not going to go through each individual paper. However, one of the best ways to look at this is through the eyes of a systematic review and meta analysis. And that's exactly what we're going to do because thankfully there's two in our timeline. We're going to go back to 2012 with a Cochrane review of data up to that point, and then a more recent Cochrane review that examined this very issue in 2021. And we're going to see if they differed or agreed on their conclusions. And I also want to present two specific papers that actually show the polar opposites of what people are finding with this. One shows a statistically significant difference, and the other finds no difference at all. So I want to highlight those two first, and then we'll take a look at our systematic review and meta-analysis. Before we move on, we do need to make a very important distinction and a clinical pearl here. In most of these studies, the use of injection into the umbilical vein is as a preventative tool. It's used as a preventative option to prevent a prolonged third stage of labor, to prevent retained placenta, which would therefore prevent postpartum hemorrhage, right? Preventative. In some articles, it's meant to treat retained placenta. But in none of the articles, in none of the searches, is this an established treatment for postpartum hemorrhage. So we have to be very clear, all right? If a patient has known postpartum hemorrhage, please follow the usual assessment of the four Ts and be aggressive because postpartum hemorrhage is its own algorithm. Remember, there's a lot of morbidity with that. So give the patient listida proceed with your regular uterotonics, proceed with a 4T survey, do the standard care for postpartum hemorrhage. But I just want to make it very clear that in the majority of the studies, the injection of the umbilical vein is either for the prevention of a retained placenta, and therefore the prevention of a prolonged third stage, and indirectly prevention of postpartum hemorrhage, and in some articles has been used as a treatment of retained placenta. But in none of the journal pieces, and none of the of the studies, and the clinical investigations, is this a treatment being proposed for a postpartum hemorrhage that's established. So I'll be very clear, this is all to prevent or to treat retained placenta, but this is not being looked at for a treatment of active PPH. Okay, my goodness. We got to speed this up because we still got stuff to cover, but I promise this is going to be under 25 minutes. All right. Maybe under 30 minutes. I hate to go for 30 minutes. So let's try to do this quickly, but I do want to highlight first, as I mentioned, two articles that show the polar opposite of this intervention. Now you got to remember, if there was something to this, the results should be more in the middle. All right. They shouldn't be this polar opposite, but even when things show positive results, in other words, effectiveness, I got to remind everyone that there's a difference between statistically significant, which is a math issue, and clinically significant. In other words, oh, our p-value is less than 0.05. Well, that's fantastic. But clinically, does that mean anything? And that's what the majority of these papers have found. Hey, we can decrease the time for the placenta to deliver, but does that really matter when the first treatment group was about three minutes and the control group was five minutes? I mean, does that really make a difference? So again, those are statistically significant differences, but may not be clinically significant. In a journal publication in March 2013, which was out of the Taiwanese Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, the authors sought to investigate the effect of intraumbilical vein oxytocin injection on the third stage of labor. That's exactly what we're talking about here. This was a randomized clinical trial of 178 women. So this is level one evidence, guys. Everybody wants level one evidence? Well, here we go. Well, what happened? Well, the women who received intrambilical vein oxytocin did, in fact, have a shorter third stage of labor compared to the placebo. Look at these numbers. They provided the time in the third stage of labor between the treatment and the control in minutes, plus or minus any variations, okay? So in the treatment group, it was four plus or minus three minutes in the treatment group, okay? And those that were placebo, the third stage of labor lasted 10 minutes, plus or minus seven Wow, that's a huge spread. So if you do the 4 minutes plus or minus 3 in the treatment versus 10 minutes plus or minus 7 in the placebo, uh, what? (laughs) I mean, the actual numbers, we bring them down to their median uh, is very little difference at all. And does it really matter? And the answer was no, because nobody was close to being in the third stage of labor. That p-value was 0.001. However, again, meaning that it was statistically significant, but likely not clinically significant. So the authors concluded, ah, umbilical vein administration of 10 units of oxytocin, which was 1 ml, immediately after fetal delivery, was clinically effective in shortening the third stage of labor, end quote. While it may have been clinically effective, But it's not clinically significant. So you have to be able to read into this. Also, remember that these authors injected 10 IUs, which was 1 ml of oxytocin. Now, think about that. This is going into the umbilical vein. Remember, we talked about volume in the other papers? This is 1 ml. Now, if they injected the umbilical cord with 1 ml, where did that go? I mean, did that even reach the placental mass? It's 1 ml. Likely that got stuck into the straw that's still in the cord. So it's just interesting what's out there. But nonetheless, is there RCT level 1 evidence that injection into the umbilical cord can shorten the third stage of labor? Absolutely. Is that clinically relevant? Likely no. Okay. Fun times. Now, that brings us to a separate article from AJOG, the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, from May 1991. The title of this publication is Umbilical Vein Administration of Oxytocin for the Management of Retained Placenta. Is it effective? Great. It's exactly what we want to figure out. Well, the short answer is this was another RCT, this was multicenter, involving 220 women. And let's just get to the punch, quote, a reduction was not gained in the rate of maternal removal of the placenta, and there was no decrease in the amount of blood loss. There was no decrease in the overall median time interval from administration to the spontaneous exposure of the placenta, end quote. In other words, it didn't change any endpoint. Again, multicenter level one evidence, RCT, from the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology that, yeah, it didn't do anything at all. So one article shows yes as an RCT, and the other shows absolutely no difference in an RCT. This is why we need a systematic review and meta-analysis, and let's get to that right now. I said that I wanted just to highlight those two examples of what we're dealing with here. But the best way to look at this is to a systematic review and meta-analysis, which brings us to a Cochrane review from 2012. Now, we're not going to stay there because there's another one that looked at this very issue again in 2021. But let's go back to 2012 for just a moment. The Cochrane review in 2012 reviewed, quote, umbilical vein injection of the routine management of third stage of labor, end quote. And of course, let's just get to the end here years because we're running out of time, but the authors concluded after their meta-analysis quote, routine use of oxytocin or any other uterotonic with normal saline into the umbilical vein is not recommended until new evidence is available. Further research should be conducted to show effectiveness of oxytocin with normal saline via the umbilical vein injection. So just to be very clear, the Cochrane Review reviewed uh, the published data up to 2012, and that's why I don't want to go into too much because there's a new one that is built on this in 2021. But just remember, Cochrane Review 2012 found no evidence that any kind of injection into the umbilical vein will do anything. Then, almost 10 years from that first one, comes the next Cochrane Review. This title, again, is Umbilical Vein Injection for the Management of Retained Placenta. So notice the title is a little bit different, but the scope, the aim is basically the same. Remember we said all of these are preventative measures to attack the third stage of labor, to add another tool in the active management of the third stage. Remember, right now there's three supported and evidence-based techniques for the active management of the third stage of labor, and that's uterine massage, that is uh, cord traction, and then the use of oxytocin, the use of, of uterine agents uh, after the baby delivers. The selection criteria for this review were randomized controlled trials for so level one evidence comparing umbilical vein injection of saline or other fluids with or without uterotonics compared with either expectant management or some alternative solution or other uterotonic agent. This review included 24 trials. All included trials, once again, were RCTs. One was quasi-randomized, and none were cluster-randomized. The risk of bias was variable across the included studies. And they also assessed the certainty of the evidence for these four different comparisons. There were saline versus expectant management, oxytocin versus expectant management, oxytocin versus saline and oxytocin versus plasma expander. Remember these are all being injected into the umbilical vein so four different categories. So they looked for the rate of bias and also for the level of certainty. In other words, what the, 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 the vigor of the results. So yeah, you can find something that that is statistically significant like we talked about before. but again was that certainty? there? Was it done well? Was it standardized? Was it uh, addressing confounders? So risk of bias is something that you always have to address. And also you have to address the certainty of the evidence in these meta-analyses and systematic reviews. Well, let's get right to it. What were the author's conclusions after all of this review of all the four categories? Well, they found, hey, umbilical vein injection of oxytocin is an inexpensive and simple intervention that could be performed with placental delivery that's delayed. Well, wait a minute. That that sounds very reassuring. Yeah, I mean, once again, little risk, and it could maybe work. Yeah, that's a could and a maybe together. Because they go on to say, quote, this review identified low certainty evidence that oxytocin solution may slightly reduce the need for manual removal. Wow, that's a lot there. Did you get that? (laughs) So low low certainty and then may slightly reduce, end quote. So you got to read those words for what that means. All right. Those words are very heavy. So in other words, yeah, as my wife's family from Galveston sometimes says, yeah, it might could. Yeah, what does that even mean? <laughs> like, hey, you're gonna go. Uh, you think that uh, whatever that game's gonna win tonight, that team's gonna win tonight? Yeah, they might could. They might could. Okay, but wait, there's more because the Cochrane review of 2021 goes on to say, "quote." However, there are little or no differences of other outcomes. In other words, hey, look, yeah, you can maybe tr- use it for retained placenta. I mean, if you've got no other option, uh, and it's either that or a DNC, well, try it because, "quote." It may slightly reduce the need for manual removal, end quote. But you see, now this is already at placental delayed delivery. This is already at 30 minutes. This is a long time. So obviously something else is going on there. So all to say, and remember at the beginning I said, there could be one potential time when this could be used. And it's because of this statement. So here's the one potential time where umbilical vein injection of pitocin may be of value. And if you're going to do it, it should be high volume not 1 ml, that's going to get stuck in the straw of the umbilical cord. Make sense? So the one clinical scenario is, look, if you're in a low-resource area where you have no other medications, the patient has no IV access, the patient declines IM injection of Pitocin, which is the simple alternative. That's the way to fix that. Hey, if there's no IV access, we'll just give her 10 units of IM Pitocin. we, We know that works. There's a little delay to its effect, but it lasts longer and it is effective. So just give her IM pit. But if she denies that, and the cervix is clamped down, and you can't extract the placenta, well, you've got to do something. So that's the caveat. Look at all those conditions. If she is getting prolonged third stage of labor, and there's no IV access, and she denies I.M. injection, <laughs> and you can't do manual extraction because the cervix is clamped down, then because the Cochrane review says, quote, it might could, it <laughs> it might could help, uh, then go ahead and try. Do you see how this is very unique? So the short answer is, as now we're finally at the end of the podcast, is this. Clinical Pearls family, there's a lot of stuff out there, and this is nothing new. This has gone on since the 1930s, first being published in true print in the 1960s. And despite all this time, surely there was a mountain of evidence that this worked. ACOG, SMFM, the NIC uh, guidelines... Uh, the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecology. Somebody would have endorsed this, but nobody has. And the reason is, is that at best, it might could help with retained placenta, but no other endpoint is significantly changed. So if you're doing this, I think it's fine. I'm not, I'm not You know, trying to downgrade you uh, or, or put your practice plan uh, under the bus. It's just not very strong evidence when we've got so many more options that are evidence-based. So anyway, does umbilical cord Injection through the umbilical vein of substances or Pitocin work? Well, high volume may work according to some very poor quality, low certainty ev- evidence, but the injection of 1 ml or 5 ml of fluid probably doesn't even reach the placenta. And while it may be, with a big underline on the maybe, maybe might prevent retained placenta. It doesn't change any other outcomes. It doesn't change PPH. It doesn't change the need for DNC. It doesn't really change any of the big variables that we're trying to prevent. So I hope that helps. Alright podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. We have covered a lot of information and we've walked down our history timeline starting in the 1930s, then in the 1960s, 1980s, to two current reviews, one in 2012 and then the more recent 2021 Cochrane Systematic Review. I hope you found this helpful. Send me a quick Facebook message. Let me know if you're doing this. if you thought about doing this and what your thought process is? Well, anyway, we're glad that you're part of our podcast community and we're glad that you gave us this podcast suggestion. Haley, that was great. Thank you for that. (laughs) And we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.